You're listening to the Mr. Cemetery Show, the podcast that's dedicated to the dark corners of the world. From weird news to historical oddities and the unexplained mysteries, here's your host, Mr. Cemetery. Hello and welcome back, you sick, twisted freaks. If you're new here, what took you so long, freaking slackers? Man. My name is Josh. I am Mr. Cemetery. And I'm Krista. I'm one spooky pooky. And you're listening to the Mr. Cemetery show because, well, that's what you clicked. Sorry. If you're expecting something else, I don't know what to tell you. That's what you clicked. All right. Good morning, Krista. How are you doing? Fine and dandy. Happy as a clan. Fine and dandy like sour candy. Right as rain. <laughs> sour candy. <laughs> Well, there's the title of the show, I guess. Here's your title. <laughs> it's fall. Are you excited? Yeah. I got to do some fall chores around the house. I know. Not excited about that. No. But we do got to do some bonfires. Fires and yeah. hot drinks. and That's always fun. It's also officially spooky season. Spooky season. Yes. That's the best part. Last year didn't seem very Halloween-like. It was kind of crappy with everything going on. Yeah. Hopefully it seems more fall-like this year. You remember Halloween as a kid growing up in the 80s? Oh, yeah. Good yes. times. Good times. Costumes. Yeah. It's plastic mask. Oh, this plastic mask. All oh, you, man. All you had was a daggone eye hole and that damn string in the back yeah. that would always break and smack you in the ear. Or in the there. freaking eye. Because you know, all you got is an eye hole exposed, so it's going to wrap around and just smack you in that one eye. Can't breathe, get all sweaty. <laughs> it would always break. Mm-hmm. You start off with a cool mask, seventh house in, and you're walking around that little freaking cape thing that you get. Because, oh, the plastic cape. <laughs> yeah. Because the mask then broke because the staple fell out and the string then smacked you in the freaking eyeball. Good times. Yes. <laughs> Such fun. <laughs> What was your favorite costume? Oh, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I used to always want to go as a witch every, just about every year. I can see that. Yeah, I, I think I always that. wanted to be a witch. I was a Smurf. Was you? Yes, it was awesome. I was random Smurf number 34. Yeah. Started out seventh house in. I was just a guy in a weird smock of a Smurf. You have a favorite memory of Halloween? Hmm. It's a tough one. I don't think anything specific. Just remember being able to run run around the neighborhood trick or treating till nighttime. Like they don't even go as late now. It's no. I remember being out till maybe nine ten o'clock. Yeah, it's, still hitting houses all over. Everything stops at like seven now. Yeah. Do anything bad? Any Halloween tricks? Oh, occasionally. Rotten, rotten to the <laughs> core. I knew it. You know, classics: soap and <laughs> windows, teepeeing oh, yeah. trees. Teepee. Teepee to teacher's house once. Awesome. Maybe some eggs. Never egged. Teepee to teacher's house once. She had it coming. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> we did take a, uh, you know, the five-gallon buckets you get at hardware stores. Yeah. So one time there was a bucket full of dum-dums, the suckers, filled and left on the curb there. It says, take as many as you want. So I oh. took the whole bucket because <laughs> I wanted the whole bucket. Well, yeah. They never did that again. I bet not. That was awesome. Lesson learned. Yes. I mean, you're just going to leave a sign there that says, take, take as many as you want. Yeah. Come on. You should have said, just take one or two. Seven-year-old me saying, I want the whole bucket. <laughs> I'm going to take the whole bucket. Fun times. I was kind of a little shithead. I can see that. Yeah. 
I'm good now, though, but back then I was a shithead. So you say. Yeah. We could take a questionnaire on that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would lose it. You remember the TV specials and the, the movies? Yeah. Yeah. The 31 Days of Halloween. That was so awesome. That I looked forward great. to that. Yeah. Do they even do that anymore? I I really don't know. I mean, with everything on demand, there's nothing. That's true. Kind of ruins the whole experience. There's nothing to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, it's nice. One hand, I mean, I love being able to watch whatever I want, whenever I want, but then it's kind of kinda used to wait it. all year yeah. to watch certain stuff. And it's true. Now it's all gone. We should totally do something like that. Pick three horror movies or Halloween related movies, and I'll pick three and we'll watch them and have everybody else watch them to get us through the holiday season. That sounds good. Yes. We'll call it Mr. Cemetery's Movie Spooktacular. There you so go. So lame in it. <laughs> <laughs> Off the top of your head, what's three movies or TV shows? TV shows. Now, do they got to be like about Halloween or just horror? horror either one. It's something horror, Halloween, anything spooky. Well, I think I got three that at least has something to do with Halloween. What I've you, got. What do you got? What do you got? No particular order. No particular order. The Crow. Oh, yes. That's actually the night before Halloween. Yeah, but we watch that every Every time. Every time. <laughs> Halloween Eve. Yes. That's a, that's a must. Yeah. Um, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, yes. The cartoon or the movie? Uh, I can go either way. I really like both of them. Yes. Still. Um, I haven't seen the cartoon in forever. I know. I was thinking of that not too long ago. And Trick or Treat. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I forgot about that it's kind one. kind of a newer one, but I like it. Yeah. Okay. Mine would have to be, that's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Because you can't have Halloween unless that bald little shithead and his bag of rocks <laughs> and his blanket-loving friend, pal, you know, they go out and they wait in that damn freaking patch all night and that ungrateful ass never shows up. Yeah. Ungrateful freaking great pumpkin. But you can't have Halloween without I know. Without that, that was one of the ones that yes. come up every year. Beetlejuice. Oh, Beetlejuice is awesome. It's classic. That's, that's all you can say. It's classic. And I'd have to say Child's Play because... Well, ever since the last time we did a podcast, I've wanted to watch it, and I still haven't did it, so. And, you know, I always wanted a My Buddy doll, and I never got one, and just watching that guy just go around just killing people used to make (laughs) me laugh, so. Remember your cousin's kid had a, who was it, had that doll uh, when he was little, carried it around everywhere. That was the Crypt Crypt Keeper. Keeper Yes. (laughs) That was so awesome. He loved that thing. He's like. Carried that thing everywhere and he'd make it laugh <laughs> two years old was just yeah. attached to this crypt keeper doll bucket on his head and crypt keeper <laughs> doll yeah good times my family's weird mm-hmm. i totally forgot about that i think he still doll. has that does he i think he does it was awesome it just cracked me up watching him carry that thing he carried it everywhere he was a weird little kid though <laughs> yeah lo- he loved horror movies yeah two years old would scream every time somebody else was screaming in a horror movie. Just laugh. Just laugh. <laughs> he loved them. Oh, we were not good role models. No. No. <laughs> wasn't. Well, with all that being said, let's turn it over to some weird-ass news. Okay, you ready for this one? Yeah. Priest claims demons have figured out how to send threatening text messages. Are they the ones trying to contact me about my car warranty? They are. They are. Oh. <laughs> Good guess. I knew it. <laughs> oh, it's going to be hard to get through this one. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Stephen Rossetti, a licensed psychologist and counselor, said 
that they do haunt their victims, their families, and their priests trying to save them. The clergyman said, We've had three cases in which demons have taxed his team or the family of the possessed person. Two of these cases were the most difficult cases we've ever had so far, and a third involved a family with priestly and religious connections and children. So all were high-value targets which high-ranking powerful demons were involved. This suggests it takes considerable spiritual energy to cross over and manipulate such items in the physical world. The 70-year-old who, alongside his team, performs 20 exorcisms a week in Washington, D.C., shared examples of some of the messages. One said, Her torments start now, priest. All night, we will make her bleed. Another gloated, We're glad she's away from you now. The issue of texting with demons is covered in the priest's book, Diary of an American Exorcist. He claims demonic interference with technology is nothing new, with a long and well-documented history of them flickering lights on and off and targeting TVs. Stephen recently claimed a man possessed by a demon woke up with beast's huge marks on his back during an exorcism. It looked like a huge beast took their claws and raked across their back, he said. Five claw marks about two feet long and about two inches wide, and it looked really ugly, he said. <laughs> I don't know where to begin with this one. <laughs> Do, do names, when they text, do the names pop up like demon number one, demon number five, or Frankie? Mm-hmm. I have so many questions. Yeah, Has he tried calling the numbers back? That's a good question. See? Do the demons send emojis? Like the little skull or the oh. poop symbol? <laughs> I mean, I have so many questions here. <laughs> How does this guy perform so many exorcisms a week and we don't hear about him? Yeah, right. 20 a week, 52 weeks. That's a lot. That's 1,040 a year. Also, I always thought it was like really hard to get an exorcism approved. Right? So how do you... I think this guy is just trying to like, first he's full of crap. He's trying to sell his book. I mean, sounds like for nineteen ninety nine you can buy his book and he'll throw in a bottle of holy water for free. I mean, oh, well, that's a deal. That's a great deal, right? <laughs> I call bullshit on this guy. I think he's just out trying to make a buck and... I would like a demon to text me a little poop symbol. Yeah. That's, that's all I want now. <laughs> demon poop? Demon poop. And it better say demon number one when it pops up. I don't want to deal with demon number six or number seven. I want the main demon to send me a poop emergency. That's it. You want the top demon, huh? Top demon, top shit. <laughs> that's all I'm asking for. That's all he's asking for. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> Great movie, by the way. <laughs> well, let's take a commercial break and we'll be right back. Too scared to sleep? Then get some coffee. Check out our haunting friends over at Sinister Coffee and Creamery. They have the perfect coffee to help you stay awake. Whether you're looking for whole beans, ground, or organic coffee pods, Sinister Coffee and Creamery has you covered. Their beans are prepared in small batches to ensure a gourmet roast that will have you screaming for more. Check them out at SinisterCoffeeandCreamery.com and use our special discount code CEMETERY10 to save 10% off your order. Again, that's SinisterCoffeeAndCreamery.com. Use discount code CEMETERY10 to save 10% off your order. And we're back. You want to go first today? Sure, I'll go first. All right. My story is about the escape from Alcatraz. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. That's good. So, the Alcatraz prison is situated on a small island in the middle of San, San Francisco Bay. Nicknamed The Rock, it was once a military prison that held Civil War prisoners and later became a federal prison in the 1930s. It held some of the nation's most notorious criminals, such as Al Capone and George Machine Gun Kelly. 
Alcatraz is a foreboding place surrounded by rough, icy cold waters of the Pacific. The redesign in the 1930s for federal prison made it even more so by adding tougher iron bars, a series of strategically positioned guard towers, and strict rules, including a dozen checks a day of the prisoners. Escape seemed near impossible. During its 29 years of operation, the penitentiary claimed that no prisoners successfully escaped the island. A total of 36 prisoners made 14 escape attempts, two men trying twice, 23 were caught alive, six were shot and killed during their escape, two drowned, and five are listed as missing and presumed drowned. However, on June 12, 1962, the routine early morning bed check would be anything but. Three convicts were not in their cells, John Anglin and his brother Clarence and Frank Morris. In their beds were cleverly built dummy heads made of plaster, flesh-toned paint, and a real human hair that apparently fooled the night guards. Later, some paddle-like pieces of wood and bits of rubber inner tube were found in the water. Homemade life vest was also discovered and washed up on Cronkite Beach. But extensive searches did not turn up any other items in the area. As the days went by, investigators were able to find more evidence, and with the help of a fourth plotter, they were able to piece together the ingenious escape plan. Using crude homemade tools, they were able to dig through the wall behind the air vents in their cells that led to an unguarded utility corridor. There they had a secret workshop where they kept a variety of stolen materials that they used to make their escape, including more than 50 raincoats that they carefully stitched together and vulcanized by the hot steam pipes in the prison to use for makeshift life preservers and a rubber raft. After the prisoners made their way to the water, it is a mystery of what became of them next. Did they make it to the land, or did the frigid wind and water get the best of them? The FBI continued their case for 17 years before officially closing the case and turned it over to the U.S. Marshal Service. Although authorities believe it is highly likely that the group perished during their escape, there have been scraps of evidence throughout the years that may prove otherwise. The nephew of the two escapees reported that his grandmother had mysteriously received roses for several years after the escape. In 2015, a History Channel special showed an alleged photograph of the Anglin brothers taken in Brazil around 13 years after their disappearance. In 2018, CBS San Francisco published an extract of a letter addressed to the FBI claiming to be John Anglin. It read, My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. The letter was sent to San Francisco Police Department in 2013, but kept under wraps pending investigation results to determine its legitimacy, which was ultimately deemed inconclusive. The letter did go on to explain that he is the last living member of the trio. The others died in 2005 and in 2008. He also offered a deal in which he would turn himself in if authorities would announce on television that he would only receive a one-year jail sentence so that he could receive the medical treatment he needed. The FBI did no such thing and instead repressed the letter that they believed to be a hoax. The prison was closed permanently in 1963, a year after the men vanished. Today it plays host to more than a million tourists each year, often drawn to the site by the story of the Anglin Brothers, which was adapted for the screen in 1979 film Escape from Alcatraz. John Anglin's cell, where the men made their exit, is a popular attraction. It's preserved almost perfectly with the same gaping hole in its teal-painted wall but even the scene of the crime offers few answers as to where these great escapees wound up. I'm going with they made it. I think so, too. They had to. Yeah. 
too many things pointing to they made it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of weird stuff through the years that really seems like they did. Yeah, I'm going with the prison to, you know, say, hey, they didn't make it. Oh, no. You can't escape the rock. Can't escape. I don't want to. Cover <laughs> up. I'm going with cover up to save their asses. Mm-hmm. I think they made it. I think they did, too. I, I want them to have made it. Makes a great story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, too many signs point to yes, they, they made it. Yeah. They never found the bodies. Nope. No. Bodies would show up somewhere. Yeah, I would think so, too. I don't think they would have gotten... It's a channel. It's a little bay area that I would think they would have found them. They, I don't want to say that they were swept out to the ocean, but... Bodies would show up somewhere. I think they would have showed up. Much as they were searching for them, you know they were going to search the ocean. Yeah. I don't think they would have got that far. No. Somebody helped them. Yeah. They got it. That's what I'm going Oh, well, I did see there was something about a boat, brief mention at one point, that that night there was a boat um, shining shining a light into the water, but then when they went back to look, there was no boat, and nobody has any idea. It was just like an eyewitness account that said they seen a boat, Hmm. so that's a possibility. Possibility. Maybe somebody picked them up. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do a plan. You might have been able to have something set up out yeah. there so they get so far on those rafts and then have somebody pick you up the rest of the way on the boat. Yeah. That'd be an awesome plan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think they made it. I think so, too. Well, with all of that, I got a little mystery of myself. Yeah. And it goes a little something like this. Something pretty disturbing happened in Circleville, Ohio in 1976. Starting small and growing over the decades, residents began to receive letters that accused them from being involved in some pretty disturbing things, like embezzlement, domestic violence, affairs, and even murder. This is the story of the Circleville letter writer. Bus driver Mary Gillespie was accused of a supposedly non-existent affair with the superintendent of a local school. The writer told Mary that he or she had been observing the house and knew that she had small children. It was postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, but had no return address. Within eight days, Mary received a similar letter. She kept all the letters to herself, until her husband Ron received one of his own. The letter stated that if Ron did not stop his wife's affair, his life would be in danger. After two weeks, the writer threatened to go public with the affair allegations, broadcasting on local TVs, CB radios, and billboards. Mary and Ron only told three people about the letters. Ron's sister, her husband Paul, and Paul's sister. Mary had some ideas about who might be sending the letters. They decided to have Paul write letters to the suspect, claiming that they know who he or she was. The plan seemed to work. The letters stopped for several weeks. That all changed on August 1977 when Ron received a phone call from the alleged writer. The call seemed to confirm Ron's suspicions on the identity of the writer. He grabbed his gun and then left in his pickup truck, even though the writer claimed to be watching the truck. A few minutes later, Ron was found dead inside of his pickup truck, crashed into a tree. Investigators later learned that Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun before crashing. Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe questioned and eliminated at least one suspect in the case. He later then ruled Ron's death an accident, claiming that he had lost control and crashed while driving drunk. However, several residents soon received letters stating that the sheriff had been involved in a cover-up. According to Paul, Sheriff Radcliffe initially agreed that the death was a result of foul play. However, he allegedly changed his mind when the suspect passed the polygraph test. 
Ron's blood alcohol level was 0.16, which was twice the legal limit. Many of Ron's friends and family were surprised by this. They did not think he was a heavy drinker. Mary and the superintendent later acknowledged a relationship, although they claim it did not happen until after the letters were sent. In February of 1983, Mary was harassed along her bus route. The letter writer apparently began placing threatening signs next to the road. One day, Mary had enough and decided to go rip the sign down. When she did, she discovered a booby trap designed to kill her. The trap contained a small pistol. If Mary would have pulled the sign off in a certain way, the gun would have fired, shooting her in the head and possibly killing her. There was an amorous attempt to rub off the serial numbers on the gun. When the lab tests were able to raise the numbers, it was determined that the gun had belonged to Paul, who recently separated from Ron's sister. Paul, however, claimed the gun had been stolen. And on February 25, 1983, Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet him and take a handwriting test. He asked Paul to try and copy the handwriting from the letters. Sheriff Radcliffe also had him write the letters while repeating them verbally. After the test, Paul took Sheriff Radcliffe to his garage and showed him where he kept his gun. Afterwards, the two returned to the courthouse where Paul was arrested and charged with attempted murder. On October 24, 1983, he went on trial for attempted murder of Mary. Although he was never charged with writing the threatening letters, they became a crucial part of the evidence against him. A handwriting expert testified that Paul was the letter writer. Mary also testified that she believed that he was the writer after his wife visited her with the same suspicion. Paul's boss also testified that he was not at work the day that the booby trap was found. Paul had an alibi for most of the day. However, he never took the stand in his defense, proclaiming his innocence. He was convicted and given a 7-24 to 24 year sentence. While there, Paul himself received letters from the writer determined to keep him in there. Others still received letters as well, postmarked from Columbus. Even though Paul was in prison in Lima and was in solitary confinement, the letters still kept arriving. In December of 1990, Paul was eligible for parole. He was denied parole due to the letters, even though there was no way that he could have been sending them. In May of 1994, Paul was finally paroled, and he continues to maintain his innocence. However, the author of those letters has never been revealed. A journalist, Martin Yant, has investigated this story and found another possible suspect that could have been the writer. He also discovered that 20 minutes before Mary found the booby trap, another bus driver on Mary's route had seen a suspicious man standing next to a yellow El Camino. The man was at the same spot where the trap would be found later. Yant found that the possible suspect's brother owned the same type of car. The description does not match Paul, and he had a solid alibi at the specific time. Things get even weirder in this case. Now, this case was going to be featured on an episode of the original Unsolved Mysteries TV series, and while filming the story, they received a postcard apparently from the letter writer. Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you all sickos will pay. Signed, the Circleville Writer. Now, the original air date of that episode was November 11th, 1994. Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe and Mary Galepsi decided to not be interviewed during the story. Although not mentioned in the segment, Paul allegedly admitted to the sheriff that he had written between 40 and 50 of the Circleville letters. The Circleville Writer who wrote the postcard to the Unsolved Mysteries, their identity remains unrevealed. Since all this, Paul, who maintained a blog for several years, passed away in 2012, never knowing the identity of the Circleville writer. However, the recent information uncovered by Martin Yant and others have suggested that there were at least three writers involved in this case, none of whom were Paul. One was believed to be the son of the superintendent who Mary had an affair with. The second was believed to be a co-worker who was infatuated with Mary. The third was believed to be Paul's ex-wife, 
Ron Gillespie's sister. It is believed that the ex-wife's boyfriend was the man seen next to the El Camino on the day that the booby trap was discovered. One of her relatives owned that type of car at the time. Despite the evidence, the police still maintain that Paul was a Circleville rider. This case was even portrayed in the series Drunk History. However, the comedians in the case speculated that Mary might have been behind the letters, getting the stories about her neighbors from the kids on the bus and stealing Paul's gun, using an attempt on her life to throw off the investigators. As yet, there have been no follow-ups on this theory. In August of 2021, a 48 Hours episode aired that featured an interview with Beverly East, a renowned handwriting and forensic documentation expert. She concluded that the police were correct all along that Paul was in fact the writer. She pointed to key characteristics in the Circleville writer's handwriting that matched Paul's to prove her point. However, how Paul would have been able to write some of the letters from prison remains unknown. If he had an accomplice helping him mail the letters while he was incarcerated, that has yet to be answered. So with all of that, what's your take? That's a whole crazy story. Although the whole letter writing thing, I guess I'm not an expert, but I don't think you have somebody try to copy the letters exactly. No. <laughs> no. I mean, I am no expert. I don't think that's how that's done. Because you're just going to copy. You're going to try your hardest to copy it. Yeah. So that's that's weird. And it's weird that they're still trying to push that when that happened. I, yeah. I would think that would be completely inadmissible. There's so much craziness in this story. I'm thinking there was more than three people involved in this. I would think so. It's a small town. It's I don't think small. she did it because... She just outed her own affair in the beginning of it. Why would she? I don't think she started it, but I think she joined in. I think most of the town joined in. Afterwards, that might be. I think. I didn't know the one guy was the superintendent's son, though. I knew he worked at the school. I just didn't realize that. One of the writers were possibly his son. Yeah. Yeah. Burden. Wasn't uh, he trying to hit on her or something? Or am I thinking of somebody else? There was like another one at the school in another story that I had seen. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. There was a guy that was, and I think they thought maybe he had been one. Well, there was a guy that was infatuated with her. He yeah. was in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was the son. No, it's a different guy. Different guy. Oh. Different I guy. I see now. Okay. Yeah. No. I actually did some, some research and I actually found... Almost 50 of the letters online. Took oh, me, yeah. Took me some digging. But so yeah. they're posted? Yeah. If you, they're not really posted, but, oh. you know, I do sneaky stuff. That's what you do. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually found 50 of the letters. They're, they're so weird and creepy, and I think it's more of the people trying to just get what they want from people in the town. You yeah. Know, they got this thing going on. Hey, I can get this person to do this, you know, circle wheel lighter, boom. You know, so that's what I'm thinking. And then you got all this going on. So you know it's being covered by the news. Why is not anybody in the post office going, this says circle wheel lighter? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of weird. I'm thinking they knew somebody in the post office or post office people just ain't doing their job. That could be it too. Um, yeah. Yeah, because you would think that 
with all that going on, somebody would be like, as soon as they picked it up, maybe. Yeah. Okay, where did this come from? They could. You would think that they could go back to where they picked it up originally, the the yeah. mailbox. Yeah, I mean they were getting they were getting sent out of Columbus. Yeah. But you think somebody in that Columbus post office would be like, "Why are you?" Yeah. Why does it say this? Because they were all signed the Circleville writer on them. Yeah, and they didn't. I mean, I know they didn't have a return address, but I would think they would probably be on the lookout and be able to try to find which mailbox that was put in. Yeah. And then kind of watch the mailbox. You would think. But. You know, makes too much sense, I guess. Way too much sense. (laughs) Creepy story. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this show if you haven't, so you never miss a future episode. If you could help us out by telling your friends or your family, or even spread the word on social media, whatever you can do to help out to spread the word of our little podcast here would be much appreciated. Again, thank you all so very much for tuning in. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. See ya! Thanks for listening to another episode of the Mr. Cemetery Show. The Mr. Cemetery Show is an independent production. For photos from today's episode, find us over on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mr. Cemetery. If you have a story you would like to submit, send it to us at the Mr. Cemetery Show at gmail.com. And as always, stay creepy, my friends. Fine and dandy like sour candy?